In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello and welcome to a very special crossover, worldly weeds show on a pretty big day in American political history. I'm Mr. Klein and I'm here with Zach Beecham, with Jen Williams and with Alex Ward, the host of Worldly. How are you all doing? We're tired. Very tired. Yeah, but, we've been working a lot today. So tired. To be here. So today the Mueller report came out. Um, we've been waiting for this for literally years at this point. And it gives us an opportunity to do something that has been hard to do for a long time, which is amidst all of the people spinning the report at us, the leaks, the Trump tweets about no collusion, William Barr, Attorney General William Barr coming out and saying this was an exoneration. We now have the opportunity to read all 400 plus pages for ourselves and make a decision, make a judgment about what actually happened. And we've been reading this report all day. We've had a team of people at Vox going through this, trying to actually understand it. And Zach, let me start with you. What is the big picture of the report? The big picture of the report is that no collusion, no obstruction, which is Trump's summary, is not accurate. It is much more detailed and much more complicated on both of those fronts. But there is, in the report, essentially evidence that the president was at least in some ways involved with Russian operatives who were working on the election or doing activities related to it. And second, there is pretty compelling evidence that the president interfered potentially criminally with the investigation, that is to say obstruction. Now, that's the big picture. There are just so many details in this report. It's really quite long. That first part, I think, has been different than what people have been saying, that there's evidence he potentially worked with Russians. My understanding has been that there's not that part, that that was not established. So what's in your head there? When I, when I say worked with Russians, I don't mean that he was criminally involved in the campaigns to steal emails or to create social media cutouts, the things that were actually charged as crimes by Mueller and the special counsel's office. That, that he was not involved in the Trump campaign wasn't. Mueller's clear on that point. But collusion isn't the same thing as committing a crime. It means being involved with overall Russian activities to interfere or be involved with, uh, generally speaking, the conduct of the U.S. election, to change the outcome of it. And there are a number of different reports in the report, some of which we knew publicly, some of which we didn't, incidents in which Trump reached out to Russians or Russians reached out to Trump to try to talk about the election or policy-related coordination stuff. One really striking example is when Trump publicly called on Russia to get Hillary Clinton's emails and then privately instructed Michael Flynn, who is a campaign advisor and future national security advisor, 
to go get the emails, which he had just publicly suggested Russia might have, right? He clearly was signaling openness to working with Russia's hacking of the election there. Let me ask you, the rest of you, do you, do you think this justifies the fears people have had coming into this report? Or do you think this has been, as the Trump administration wants to say it is, reasonably exculpatory? Like, where, where, on level of alarm, where should we be? I think you should be somewhat alarmed here. I mean, let's look at this from Russia's perspective, right? What Moscow did was attack an election, use uh, hackers to steal emails related to Clinton's campaign, send those emails to a cutout, meaning an in-between, in this case, WikiLeaks. Then WikiLeaks goes on and has connections with members related to the Trump campaign about those emails. And then WikiLeaks ends up disseminating those emails, which ends up becoming a massive hit on Clinton and, and, and a big problem throughout the entire election. If you're Moscow, you now know you can follow this playbook as long as there's really no direct quid pro quo, like actual handshake with the campaign you're trying to help. So the danger here is less so that oh, Trump and Putin had an agreement, and more so that Russia now knows how it can continue to influence American elections from here on out. And Jen, what about the obstruction of justice side of this? I mean, this report has two volumes, and the second entire volume is about how Donald Trump and his administration reacted to the investigations into him. What what do you think the big takeaways on obstruction of justice are? Right. So having read like the whole obstruction section, it is really clear that Robert Mueller and his investigation found a whole bunch of incidents in which President Trump himself actively tried to exert influence and control over the special counsel investigation to get it killed, to get it ended, to get it curbed so that it didn't investigate parts of his campaign or his actions. Like, bottom line, there are a whole lot of incidents and there's clear evidence. And Mueller basically comes right out and says that without going the further step and saying, I'm going to suggest that we charge him for this. But he does literally everything else up to that line, basically. So there, there's so many times in American politics where I feel like what we're doing is we're taking something that is not that bad, not that big of a deal, and blowing it into a huge issue. And in a weird way, I feel like with a lot of what we now know about the Russia investigation, it's almost gone the opposite way. That it was big at the time, but now as we've gotten accustomed to it, it's become hard to even recognize how crazy the story where, where it is. So just to reflect this back, because I want to make sure that you guys think I have this right. If you just woke up today and you read this and it's all you knew about American politics, what you'd find out is that, quote, the Russian government intervened in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. They did so on Donald Trump's behalf. Donald Trump during this period was trying to get a Trump Moscow hotel built, and he was doing so much later than he admitted. He thought, and his campaign thought, the Russian intervention would help him. That intervention, in fact, did help him. <laughs> there was a fair amount of intervening to help out Russian interests later on. And then as Donald Trump wins the election and becomes a president, while he does not appear, or at least it does not establish that anybody in his campaign really directly coordinated around Russia's involvement in the election, although they appear to have at least publicly welcomed it, he begins to experience and understand the attack on the election as a kind of in-kind benefit to his own campaign and any attack on it or investigation into it as an attack on him or an investigation into him that he now needs to obstruct, defend himself from, get other people to defend him from, as opposed to being the president of the entire country and experiencing an attack on the election as an attack on America's political system and trying to find out what had happened and trying to protect us from anything like that in the future. 
that to me, it, I think that's a fair summary here. And that to me is a really damning story of American politics in this era. Yeah, I, I think that there's one way in which you just described it that captures the sort of feel and gist of the report really neatly. Uh, in the the Trump Tower incident that we all know about when Donald Trump Jr. said, if it's what you say, I love it, in exchange for an offer of Russian involvement and assistance in getting dirt on Hillary Clinton, that potentially is a campaign finance violation. And Mueller looked at this in the collusion section. And what he found was not that it was necessarily legal or fine or above board. It was that they could not prove that Donald Trump Jr. understood that what he was doing would be in violation of campaign finance statutes, was an illegal solicitation of Russian support. So it wasn't like a plot to collude, right? It was them trying to do things that benefited themselves with help from Russia, without understanding how bad it would be. And then when it became clear that it was really, really bad and really harmful to the United States and the electoral system, they saw all of those allegations not as reasons to apologize or to look back openly or clearly on their own behavior, but as an attack on the legitimacy of their political project. And that, that comes through again and again in both the collusion and obstruction sections. So Mueller does actually, in the report, talk about the intent behind the obstruction. So the, the point you were just getting to, Zach, the Mueller report says that explicitly. They said, you know, we believe that Trump did this because he started to see this as an attack on his legitimacy, and he thought it was preventing him from governing effectively, right? And he said this publicly. Trump has said, you know, I would like to have better relations with Russia, but I can't because of this stupid investigation. That is pretty clear. It's what the report found. It's what Trump has said. But the way he went about doing that, again, is not like, I want to make sure and defend the institutions of the United States, right? I want to make sure this never happens again because it's an attack on legitimacy of my election in terms of, like, American elections, he made it about him. And so he also proceeded to then attack our institutions, right? Calling this investigation illegal and a hoax and a witch hunt and all of this stuff, saying that it was a political slam against him led by the Democrats. That's where it really diverges from something that seems like a reasonable reaction to say, yes, this is a challenge to my legitimacy because it's a challenge to our electoral legitimacy. And going down this very, like, personal narcissistic it's all about me, 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 not about defending America. And that's where I think you have a really serious problem. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. And in fact, that after reading this report, it what stood out to me, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, but the Trump campaign folks acted stupidly. Like they did, right? They, they, they made a lot of just really naive errors. Then called upon those errors, Trump gets mad. He just gets angry. And when it comes down to trying to figure out like, how purposeful were the campaign's moves and Trump's moves, it kind of comes down to, we can't really tell. That's, so, what it, that's what it seemed like Mueller was coming out to, is like, they were too dumb and Trump was too mad and the and, and like, it's it's hard to know how criminally they were thinking. Right, and I think the, the one place where I would push back on that, which I don't think is actually disagreeing with you, is that there were very clear instances of people who did fucking know better, right? But sure. those people got charged for the most part. So Michael Flynn, in particular, is who I'm thinking of. Like, this man was former Defense Intelligence Agency. That guy knows damn well that you're not supposed to collude with a foreign power in an election. But he did. But he was, to the credit of the Mueller investigation, held to account for that, right? So I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that all of the collusion issues were just that they were, like, unwitting dupes. There were some people who were straight up corrupt and did this on purpose. 
So one of the things that I think is striking about the obstruction piece of this, there's a line deep in the report that that I think kind of gives away so much of it, where they say the president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. And so the, the story they're telling, and to some degree, the, the most exculpatory story you can tell of Donald Trump's behavior in the obstruction section, where he does fire James Comey and lies about it, where he tries to fire Bob Mueller, but uh, Don McGahn is basically insubordinate, and then he lies a bunch, and there, there's a half dozen other examples as well, is that what's happening around Trump is that as much as he's trying to obstruct the investigation, the people around him will not let him go all the way. And on the one hand, I don't really think we know. I think there's a real good chance that the tweets and the signals and the pressuring and the intimidation and the bullying and the firings did change people's behavior, did change what people said or whether or not they spoke. So I think it's a little bit hard to know what effect it had, but also just the idea that our rule of law right now is dependent on the president of the United States being sufficiently incompetent and also sufficiently disrespected by the White House staff that he's not able to repeatedly violate it. It it again, it seems like one of these things that is being treated as exculpatory when it is actually almost more damning. I think that that is part of the story, right, is that democratic institutions, which are supposed to constrain the president and prevent him from doing things that would constitute clear crimes or power grabs, right, those really aren't as strong as we thought they were before this report with all this evidence put together. And second, our democracy, the very health and, and fairness of our electoral institutions can be much more easily compromised by foreign powers for reasons Alex was alluding to earlier than one would have thought prior to reading this report. If a few people act in a certain way or don't act in a certain way, as the case may be, shit can really go off the rails. I think that's right, but I think there's also the opposite read. These people literally didn't do these things because of norms, because of these democratic standards. Don McGahn didn't say, I think this would be bad for me. He's like, no, that shit is illegal. Like, you can't do this. I will resign if you try to make me do this. The the person underneath Don McGahn, like essentially his deputy, was like, I will also resign. If these people had carried out these orders, ideally the fact that this investigation exists, they would have hopefully been caught. So I think there is a way to say that in some cases it worked in the sense that we know all about this now. There was a special counsel investigation. That means the norm worked. That means that democracy and rule of law worked despite all these efforts against it. So I think you could have a more positive read, or at least I'm really trying to right now. Let, let me build Let me build that from the other direction, actually. So there's a, a, a school of thought, and you obviously see it among Trump world and William Barr and others, but I, you're also seeing it from a kind of horseshoe left, I guess I would call it, like Glenn Greenwald and others in that in that space where the argument is this was always ridiculously overhyped. What this report says is that nothing really happened. What this report says is that there was no coordination between Donald Trump's campaign and Russia. What this report says is that while Trump might have tried to do a bunch of things to obstruct justice, he was stopped. And so to, to Jen's point, the, the system is working well. And that this multi-year-long breathless coverage of the Mueller report was almost a hoax perpetrated on the American people, distracting them, whipping them up towards aggression with Russia. What, what, what do you think of the idea that, no, like us sitting here talking about his reports that something really bad happened, it's missing the real story, which is that nothing happened. Oh, it's too bad. Someone else interfered in our elections. Sometimes America interferes in other people's elections. We don't have any moral standing to be that angry about that. And beyond that, what's the real story here? I think 
that's not in any way like what I'm trying to get at. I, I think no, I'm not. I'm not. A, yeah. I'm not ascribing it to you. I should say I'm. I'm using. I'm using your great point as an opportunity to to offer offer this one up for commentary. Yeah. No. Totally. <laughs> and I think honestly, part of the like holy shit, a lot of stuff really did happen. And I think the fact that democratic institutions have held are how we know about it. But I think it fundamentally goes back to Alex's point of that. If you stop right now and you're Moscow, you now feel like you have a green light to do whatever the fuck you want in our elections. And as long as you don't technically cross this line and actually commit the specific crime according to U.S. law as defined by these very narrow statutes, you can essentially get away with murder. I think two things bother me most from from this point. One is that, that you will not only get a green light in Moscow, you'll get a green light in Tehran, you will get a green light in Pyongyang, you're going to get a green light in Beijing to do these kinds of things. As long as really there's no evidence of the handshake, you can kind of get away with this. Which brings me to kind of point two, what scares me is, we've read this report. There's no way you can dismiss it as a hoax or a witch hunt. There is a there there. There's lots of theirs there. Yeah, I, I want to drill into one thing that Ezra raised, which is like the nothing happened charge. Right? Like that that's just flatly not true. If you right. read the Correct. report, no, there's that is, a there, there. <laughs> that is not sustainable. It's not just there's an abstract one. It's that we know, for instance, Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was discussing their battleground strategy with someone who his own deputy told him was probably a Russian spy. And continued to do that. After, after he and knew give that polling data yeah yeah, yeah. So right. there's that we we don't know in the report there's no evidence that the this russian believed to be agent by both uh, manafort's deputy and the fbi that he passed that on to russian hackers and that and then influenced their election targeting campaign we also Mueller have no evidence that they didn't right. right and that's just one example among dozens right this report is not no collusion it's we could not prove a very specific set of crimes there is tons of evidence of trump efforts either to collude or things that might themselves constitute a form of collusion, if not criminal conspiracy. So I, I don't want to leave uh, our listeners thinking that Glenn Greenwald might be right about this because he is not. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I want to weigh in on this Norms Institutions question, which is that I think our norms held okay and our institutions failed. And that's why I'm synthesizing some of the points here. So on, on the one hand, there are a lot of norms within the executive branch in particular that, that held okay. I think it's impressive, uh, for for instance, that when Comey was fired, Rod Rosenstein immediately appointed Bob Mueller without telling the White House first. I think you look at this and in certain ways, it is impressive that under the pressure he was getting when he decided to do it, Jeff Sessions decided and uh, continued recusing himself. Um, there was a huge amount of pressure to keep him from doing that even before he had done it. And he uh, went through with it anyway, because that is what the statute and regulations he was looking at said. On the other hand, I think our institutions are failing. The story being told here is of an unbelievably lawless president. Uh, there is a series of pretty interesting parts in the report where he keeps complaining, and he said a lot of this publicly, by the way. He keeps complaining that the role of the attorney general is to protect him personally. He thinks that's what all the other attorney generals do. He, he keeps saying he really respects Eric Holder for just being Obama's attack dog and investigating whoever Obama wanted and protecting Obama no matter the cost, which is, I think, not a fair read of Eric Holder, but is interesting in terms of Trump's understanding. He keeps saying that he wishes he had Roy Cohn here, that the attorney general should be more like a personal lawyer. Everything with uh, the, the way he he embraced the Russian interference, I think is very dangerous. And so, you know, our institutions, our branches are supposed to keep a unqualified president who is posing a threat to America's fundamental institutions, and I would say political security, not just checked, but punished. And that never happened. And I think that one of the lessons, not just here, but but it's been a American politics for a longer period of time now, is that our mechanisms of accountability are partisan. They're party-oriented, not branch-oriented. We're built for them to be branch-oriented. The idea is that ambition checks ambition and Congress checks the presidency and so on and so forth, but they're not. And so long as Republicans held power, there was never going to be any consequences for any of this. And if Democrats held a lot more power, there might be. I, I think we can say with pretty fair certainty going forward that it would work that way too. And so we'll have elections, but those elections will also just be driven by party. And, you know, there will be some people moving around on the side, but, you know, look at the polling on this. If you're a Republican, you think it's fine. If you're a Democrat, you don't. And so I, I do think there's something here in the way that it turns out we don't have institutions anymore in this country, not the way we thought we did. We have parties. We have a government built of parties and the way it works is parties. And that is not how the system is built to work. That is not what we tell ourselves about the mechanisms of accountability we hold. And I think as a result, there's a lot less accountability in it than people thought. It's great that Donald Trump is totally incompetent, that the people around him don't respect him, and so that a lot of the stuff he wanted to do, he was not allowed to do. What if he wasn't that way? 
What if he was smart and savvy and good at giving speeches and didn't blurt out every secret plan he has as soon as he got on Lester Holt show? What would happen then? Who would have stopped him then? And I think the answer is nobody. The answer is nobody. And if he was better at doing it, they would have fallen right in line. And I think that's really dangerous. It, it's not only that. Um, it's also that it creates a precedent, it being Trump's behavior here and getting away with it, that encourages future people who are to work with Trump or work with a party system to follow that pattern, to follow this hyper-partisanized way of doing things. And I'm not thinking of anyone in the abstract here. I'm thinking specifically of William Barr, right, who started out this report by writing a summary, not summary, of the report's top lines, which which claim basically that it exonerated Trump, even though we now know the report doesn't. He gave a very strange press conference right before the report's release in which he said, no collusion, functionally. You have a series of behaviors by Barr that don't make sense if he saw his role in the sort of institutional actor way, in the way that... Even Sessions to a degree did, but McGahn did or Rosenstein did. You have Barr who saw what happened to Jeff Sessions, what the president did to him, humiliating him publicly, yelling at him, what he did to these other people internally, berating them, pushing them out, and realized that his security, his survival in his job would depend on being a Trumpist party actor, acting as the president's personal lawyer. And that's the way he's been behaving. So this point about norms holding is sort of true, but the thing is that once a norm gets broken down and battered by somebody in a sufficient position of power, well, yeah, then the norms can break. I agree in large parts with the kind of partisan framing, but I don't want to give Democrats a pass here. Yes, they don't hold power in Congress, right? But They've also just straight up said, we don't have any interest in impeaching the president. And they said that before the report came out, sure. So to be fair, they have a chance to to do that. But even since the report came out, I know at least one person has said, like, ah, it's too soon for us to really make that uh, decision. Like, if you just read this document, which, again, like going back to the top line impression you get after reading this whole thing, is that this president is corrupt as fuck. He lies about everything. It's all about him. He puts himself and his interests well above anything like a constitutional duty to protect and defend the laws of the United States. There's no way that that should not, for for the opposition party, to think that that's okay and just, well, it's probably not useful for us electorally, so we're just going to skip it because we don't think our voters, like, our base is into that, or whatever the hell Nancy Pelosi and, and that calculation is, that seems to me like they're also not standing up for their duties. And yeah, like, maybe you would have no chance in going anywhere because they don't have power. I get that. But, like, fucking just say something, right? Like, this is not okay. You should say something. <laughs> I just find this line of argument honestly baffling. I've seen that on Twitter a lot today, too. So Democrats do not have the power to impeach because they don't have the votes. They don't have public support to impeach. They know it would be unpopular to impeach. They'd be less likely to be able to have the accountability of at least getting them out of office. I think it is weird, this idea that impeachment is a duty of the opposition. It isn't. The opposition, and and not the opposition, by the way, Congress. Congress has a duty to do oversight. And I think they've been very aggressive in saying they will. And and I think it's important to think of the Mueller report in some ways as like a map for where oversight is going to go from here, for where investigations and hearings and subpoenas are going to go from here. But, But this idea that one should rush into impeachment as an almost like expressive defense of the American political system, I don't get it. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to I'm open to hearing it, but 
And and then what? What? Like you lose <laughs> or it doesn't go anywhere? I mean, what is the what is the outcome of that that is actually leading to accountability? Is it just like an, an assertion of norms? But if you can't enforce them, like what what have you actually achieved? It, it seems to me there's a, a desire here for a kind of validation through the level of tactical confrontation Democrats choose that just doesn't seem to me to be actually relevant to Donald Trump being held accountable and in some ways I think is actually counterproductive. What I'm unclear with, and, and this is a genuine question for everybody, is like how, how, if you are Democrats, how do you fight, right? Because you know you're going to be facing a, a party that, well, one, definitely won't read it, but also like even if they did, will turn a blind eye to it. I mean, I genuinely don't know what the tactics are. I mean, do, do you kind of go, I get an impeachment some unpopular, but is that sort of a way to force Republicans to kind of deal with what's in here? Or do you just beat the drum with oversight and just watch obstruction happen from Republicans the whole time? Like, I, I'm genuinely confused. And this is what bothers me. It's like, I don't, this in a weird way seems very anticlimactic to me. Right, but even <laughs> in the oversight argument, right? Like, even that they have been, and there's several pieces on the site about this, about how, like, slow they've been to actually do things like, you know, issuing subpoenas and doing things like trying to actually bring people back who didn't want to testify before when Republicans were in charge of the House in these investigations. So even on that score, they could be a hell of a lot stronger. And I feel like there is this kind of argument out there, this like perception that because Trump has created this narrative on the right about how like this is just, you know, bullshit partisan Democratic attack that we should move on and just like talk about climate change and like, you know, Medicare for all and like elections rather than like, let's just get over the Russia thing. There are plenty of ways that they could be stronger. And maybe Ezra, you're right. Maybe it isn't going to impeachment. But I still feel like where the hell are the Democrats? They seem spineless in a lot of ways. And I know I'm not alone in sharing that perception. No, I, look, I think that people always feel that the opposition party is spineless. I, I actually just don't agree with it. But nevertheless, like I, I get the feeling. I do want to add just one thought in here, which is that we're talking a lot about accountability in our political system as at this point being solely the job of the opposition congressional party. And it is also very properly the job of the voters. And I know there's this argument that, well, you know, you got to have the politicians lead. Um, but there's been plenty. I mean, look, like if the voters wanted politicians going for impeachment, there are plenty of them to rally around right now. And you don't really see it in any big way. I mean, the the hard thing is, is that there's not that much public fury over this. I mean, there is there is definitely a fair amount of fury, but there is not anything like the kind of groundswell that would begin to move moderate votes or you would see those votes moving. And in 2018, when you had everybody polling and looking for the messages that worked and what people cared about, the voters didn't care that much about Russia. They cared about arguably things like healthcare. You can d debate that a little bit. They certainly cared about Trump in a kind of generalized way, but they didn't care about the, the, the broader Mueller report. And so one of the things that like if a political scientist was sitting here, they would say is that we have this very attenuated idea of the role of the public in all this. And so we're, we're demanding it out of people who are meant to be their representatives. But the reason those people are acting the way they are, spineless in your words, but I think cautious in others or just savvy in someone else's, is that they believe they're representing the public. And if they thought the public wanted something different, they would give them something different. And that's a it's a tricky space. Why do you think the public doesn't care? As someone who studies this, I, I genuinely want your reader like, why don't people think this is as important as we four seem to think this is a really fucking big deal? Why don't voters give a shit? I do not think it is shocking that voters who mostly aren't paying that close attention to the Mueller stuff, and when they are, they hear just a partisan war over it, right? They see mm -hmm. Donald Trump calling it a witch hunt. They hear Democrats saying, you know, it's a really big deal. I don't think it's 
that incomprehensible that they don't want to undergo impeachment and or even are not focusing on it. It's very hard to figure out. I mean, we only really got information on it today, right? right? The rest of it has been reading tea leaves of Robert Mueller's subpoenas or the subpoenas he referred to others. But I think this broader question, the the, the other one you're asking, is to me, you know, why don't why don't people care more that Donald Trump is lying all the time? Right? right. You don't need this for that. I mean, this is just more evidence of that. Why don't people care that he acts the way he does and behaves the way he does? And, you know, you, there are answers. They feel he represents them that, I, you know, this is like functionally he has commanded the allegiance of people with a certain set of identities and then a certain set of enemies by having their back and seeming to be fighting their enemies. But yeah, look, I think it's depressing. But also, I mean, look, you guys study... You you are the experts on on foreign governments and foreign political systems. And it seems to me that we act continuously shocked in America that a populist demagogue could rise and command a fair amount of public support as if we are somehow exempt from what it looks like in virtually every other country in the world, certainly sometimes in every other country in the world. And we're just not. That, you know, if there's any big blow here, it's to the idea of American exceptionalism or American political exceptionalism. It turns out you give us a, a demagogue in a certain political context and at least 40% of the population or 35% of the population is going to say, that's my guy. But you don't need to go internationally to look at an example example of this happening, right? Sometimes uh, this all feels like we're doing Watergate over again, right? Just with sort of different names subbed out right down to the crime of stealing documents uh, from the Democratic National Committee. It's weird. But what happened in Watergate, what makes it different, I mean, you can go listen to the whole Slate podcast, but I'll give you the summary, is that eventually this became a nonpartisan issue. Enough Republicans turned against Nixon that it became palatable for you if you were on the R side of the aisle to say enough is enough. This criminal misbehavior by the president is wrong, and we can we're, we will vote for impeachment in this case, and eventually that pressure forced him to step down. But what has happened in the U.S. and happens in a lot of other countries with rickety democratic systems, I'd encourage you to read the book How Democracies Die on this particular point, is that a system becomes so heavily partisanized and so defined by the struggle between two competing identity-based camps in the way you were describing, Ezra, that there aren't neutral norms. There aren't any reason to break from your camp because the the consequences, either ideological or personal, from for breaking with your camp and its leader are feel existential to mm, these people. And you end up sense. having this massive battle where where norms are obliterated because all that matters is your side winning. Yeah, our norms are just irrelevant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just, it's not, those kinds of things aren't important anymore. Right. So what this shows and what the bottom line to me of the public reception to the Mueller report is, it's that we are trapped in this really scary partisan doom loop that we've seen, especially in some Latin American countries uh, that have led to collapses, outright collapses in democratic governance. And and while our history of democracy is longer and our system is stronger than it was in those cases, I don't really know what we do to break the partisan struggle. So let me, uh, as we come to an end here, let me ground us back into the report. You guys have all spent a lot of time now reading it, so have I. Let's go around. What's one specific thing in the report you think people should focus on? And, and Jen, why don't I start with you? Trump is a fucking liar and I think that's still really important that people pay attention to that, right? Like, it's something that we've kind of just gotten used to. But it really struck me reading this report that, like, dear God, it's just lies over and over. And sometimes what he didn't even need to. 
because this has been very serious, I'll do a moment of levity. I mean, I think my major point I've said a couple times now with the national security issue, um, there are genuinely some moments in here that are kind of like a dark comedy. Like there's a moment where Jared Kushner needs to, wants to reach out to the Russian ambassador and he cannot remember the name of the Russian ambassador. And instead of Googling it, like email someone else, like, hey, what's the name of the Russian ambassador? I mean, there's some really kind of like comedic moments in here that, if you weren't like in a moment, you just kind of have to laugh. And I did laugh out loud sort of reading them, but knowing the sort of the tragedy of all this. But I, I would recommend if you really, it's a it's a nice beach read uh, for the weekend, look through it. Um, you can see some, some interesting tidbits and really in a way, kind of like Veep, like how the sausage is made. Like there, there are Veep-like moments in here. If there's one thing I would say, it's, it's don't, let the the sort of complexity of the details let you lose track of the big story when you're hearing about this, which is that the president was open to interference from a hostile foreign power in the election. At times, he encouraged it both publicly and in some ways privately. Then when he was challenged on that front, he tried to cover it up. He lied about it repeatedly publicly and committed things that may very well have been crimes uh, and that Mueller comes very close to saying are crimes in the report, right? Those are the two big stories of this report, not no obstruction, no collusion, not that Mueller didn't charge anyone in Trump's inner circle. It's that. It's that basic fact pattern. That's the thing you need to think about in understanding what makes this report special, what makes it important, and how it should form the foundation for a political conversation in the future. The thing that I keep coming back to that I just think doesn't get enough attention is that one day Donald Trump will not be president, and this will all be some in some weird way behind us or contextualizing the world we live in. But there's a part of the report where they talk about Russia's incursions and hacks into election systems and state election officials. But the degree to which we have a crazy and very insecure uh, election system is worrying. And, you know, to some of the points Alex has made, the incentives for foreign parties to hack into them and try to change elections is only going, is only going up. And you wouldn't need to do that much. It is true that you cannot hack the entire system at once because it isn't one system, but you don't need to be that brilliant. You just need to read 538 to figure out what are 20 counties you might want to target that could have an unbelievable effect on the future of American politics and global politics. And so no matter what side of this you're on, election security is not something that you should take lightly. And I think people should give that part of the report a lot more attention. Um, but that said, this is uh, enlightening and scary. But but it, it's good to it's good to be here with you all. I, I mean, it, as horrifying as this is, like it is it is great to be with you uh, at a, a genuinely massive moment in American history. I am heavily caffeinated, so I enjoyed the shit out of this. <laughs> I need more. <laughs> Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering in San Francisco, to Bert Pinkerton, producer of Worldly, and Jackson Bierfeld. Worldly and Weeds podcasts are Vox Media Podcast Network productions. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.